Welcome to Acquisition Talk, a podcast on the management, technology, and the political economy of weapon systems acquisition. I'm your host, Eric Lofgren. You can find this podcast and more information, including links, commentary, and articles on acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks for listening. I'm speaking with Mike Benitez, an Air Force officer with tons of experience and in his spare time writes a newsletter about national security issues called The Merge, which you can find more about at themerge.co. And yes, I've been signed up to the newsletter since it started. Mike, thanks for joining me on Acquisition Talk. Thanks. Happy to be here. Great. So I want to start with one big piece of news that there's a potential reduction in the Air Force fighter inventory from seven to four systems, and the F-22 might not be uh, one of those four. So how did we get to this point and what trade-offs need to be considered? Yeah, I'd say the uh, the media really jumped on that. But once you pull it apart, it's an eventual reality. There's really nothing too dramatic being proposed. So it's not really just about capability, but it's also the logistics to sustain it. So let's break down the seven and then we'll break down the four. So first there's the seven. And if you count it up, it's the A-10, the F-15C, the F-15E, the F-15EX, the F-16, F-22, and F-35. So that's seven, but it's really six because they're counting the F-15EX, which we have a total of two so far, and it's supposed to replace the F-15C. So that's already a policy programming decision that's been made. So let's just call the seven. It's really six. So in that six, that fighter fleet has a trifecta of issues. First of all, it's the smallest it's ever been. It's the oldest it's ever been. And then finally, it's the most diverse fleet-wise that the Air Force has ever had in its entire history. So When you combine the age, how small it is and how diverse it is, the sustainment, the modernization, and then just the simple economies of scale are all battles that we're losing on all fronts. So when you go back and you look at some of the the data from the Air Force, our weapons system sustainment has almost doubled in the past uh, 20 years. And it's about 150% in the past decade to trying to sustain the fleet. And each time we try to keep doing with what we have, we end up cutting fighters to end up paying bills. And so we're in this death spiral. Uh, so that's the problem the Air Force is in with having too many types of fighters and too old and that they're too hard to upgrade. So that's the seven, which is really six. And then the other part is that four, when he says seven to four, and that's not really four, it's a four plus one. And that plus one is the, uh, is the A-10. So when you read between the lines of how they're framing that and everything that's been said about the A-10, where that timeline, that seven to four, it's really like a 2035 timeframe. So really the big question is why a week before the budget comes out, would the chief of staff come out and make a statement that is about 15 years into the future? Why would he want to telegraph the punch out so far? And for me, my opinion is I think it's about being more open with Congress and getting them involved in the analysis and then helping them to be involved to frame a pathway forward. So in, from my experience, that's pretty refreshing and long overdue. You think about it in the defense circles, we should probably question why every year when the PV comes out, we do a play-by-play like we're opening presents at a birthday party. So it'll be breaking news every other hour as people start flipping through the J books. So imagine a day where we have some kind of transparency and stability between the Pentagon and Congress that the PV releases are really boring and procedural. So, so that's at the seven and the four. And then how you get to the seven to the four is, the, is some of the nuances that the media picked up on. So the first one is kind of the one that grabbed the headlines, which was 
that the NGAD, the next generation air dominance, will replace the F-22 as the Air Force's primary air superiority platform. Uh, newsflash, this isn't a surprise for anyone who actually follows what's going on in the Air Force. About five years ago, the Air Force charted uh, Air Superiority 2030 a working group, which led to a whole bunch of investment decisions. And we tried to forecast what capabilities were needed by the 2030 timeframe. No doubt that NGAD was part of, or as a result of that working group. And oh, by the way, I'm pretty sure we've been telling Congress that the NGAD is going to replace F-22 for a while behind closed doors. How else do you think we've been getting about a billion dollars a year to invest into that program? If it wasn't going to replace something else, we wouldn't have that kind of support. I think the number you'll see this year, it was a billion dollars last year, a billion dollars, almost a billion dollars this year. And if I was a betting man, I'd say you're probably going to see the budget come out next week with about 1.5 or so in it as it accelerates. And I want to say that the budget forecasting just for NGAD was about $7 billion over the fight up. That is some serious money. So that's the NGAD replacing the F-22. So the next question people have is why won't we just keep the F-22? The F-22 is its own problem child. Yeah, it's great. It looks great at air shows, but at the end of the day, it's not sustainable in the 2030s and it's not upgradable to be competitive either. And there's a multiple reasons that all uh, contribute to that. Number one, it's too small of a fleet, which is a whole different discussion. The second problem is it has too many first generation, first gen technologies that we tried to put into it. So think fighter size, ESA radar, thrust vectoring, super maneuverability, and fighter LO, just for starters. Because we have too small of a fleet, we actually have too small of a supplier base. And then we only have a finite number of some critical parts like engines. We can't just go buy more new engines. That's not a thing. They don't exist. And so those are all collectively problems that no amount of money in a dump truck can solve. So uh, you combine all of that with with the reality in our future trends, which is when that F-22 came out, the thing that matters, those attributes that mattered in a platform 30 years ago, some of those matter less today. And the things that mattered less back then are a lot more important now. So I think of uh, magazine depth, range, sensor payload, uh, that swap C, so swap size, weight, and power are all more important today than close-in super maneuverability and low signatures that is narrow aspect and narrow band in nature. So it's all about trading one set of attributes today and what we can trade for the things that we need tomorrow. And in the case of the NGAD versus F-22, we're trading some of the attributes that are good in the F-22 for a complete new set of attributes that literally do not exist in the fighter fleet today. And that's what the F-22 to NGAD is about. The other part of that, the next one is the F-35. Love it, hate it, doesn't matter. It's not going anywhere. But there's really three issues that I think the Air Force really needs Congress to step up and help them with. The first one is let the technology catch up. Block 4 F-35 is interesting, but it's not compelling. I think it gets us to a, a 2025 capability is what the, the JPO has been saying for a few years, but that's not 2030. And so there's a block five, whatever that might be, that needs to happen. And any money that we put into block four today, whether it's financial capital or political capital, we're probably going to need it in a few years when we actually want to buy more block fives down the road. And so every block four today has to be retrofitted at about 10 years to be this block five, whatever the follow-on is going to be for block four, whatever we call it. And that's really a double whammy when you talk modernization and readiness. So it's both. Uh, and that's going to be a bill that the Air Force is not going to be able to afford to pay. So you take that extra money. So that's the first part of the F-35 problem. The other problem or the other issue that we need help with, the Air Force needs help with, is you take the that extra money and instead of buying platforms to put into the aircraft, into the program for the F-35, invest it into logistics and the supply chains. Do not invest it in the airplanes. 
do this. And then the planes that we want to buy in 26 will have the logistics we need to operate and sustain them in 2026. And then lastly, I would say track affordability along the way, but do not let, don't let it be your guide yet. We still have a few years before we make some uh, big decisions. Then you get to the F-15. I don't think it's any surprise that the F-15 fleet will be consolidated under the umbrella of F-15EX, and it's going to take on a multi-role mission. I don't think that's a surprise to anyone that follows the Air Force. And then the last part of the, the seven to four is the F-16 or whatever. So if you take care of those first three things in that order, NGAD, that fourth thing, you have a lot more options. And so that's why I say F-16 or whatever. That can be what do we need as far as the mission capacity and the capability and what's the most economic way to do that for the next 20 years? And I think the Air Force is thinking Homeland Defense and air support for nonlinear operations to think uh, counter VEO. And so that could be a future F-35 that's considerably more affordable to procure, operate, and sustain. Maybe it is a, an F-16 variant, so a Block 70, something like that. Maybe it's a T-7 that becomes an F-7 variant from our trainer. Or maybe it's the uh, the clean sheet design that General Brown had talked about, which is being called MRX for multi-role fighter X. But based on the newest, F the F-16s we have right now, the latest ones, so based on that, it sounds like we don't have to make that decision. The Air Force won't have to worry about that until about 2028 or so, which coincidentally is the point that coincides with a whole bunch of forks in the road about uh, the F-35 program by the A-10 beginning the fleet drawdown for about a 2035 retirement timeframe. F-15E divestment and EX plus ups, et cetera. So that's the seven, the four. Well, there's just a ton of really interesting stuff that you were just talking about there, especially the block four to block five. Everyone was touting the block four as the standard and bringing the fleet up to there was going to be cost intensive. And you're already looking at block five. And it's interesting what you were saying on, I guess, just the time frame of this and signaling, right? Because the Navy every year comes out with their shipbuilding plan. That's like a 30 year plan. And the Air Force has its own methods of signaling. One of, one of the big trade-offs you talk about is that kind of size ver of the fleet. And the, the Air Force isn't just the smallest it's ever been, it's the most diverse it's ever been. And Todd Harrison talks about this a lot. He created this equation just looking at sustainment costs. And essentially, his finding was every time you double the inventory, the unit ONS cost falls about 29%. So if you have more and more of the same plane, then you should be getting lower ONS costs. And that just seems to have always have driven a lot of Air Force decisions in the past, right? Because <laughs> we want the biggest and multi-role fighter to get, drive those economies of scale. But there seems to be, I, I guess, a causation problem, right? Because it's like a successful program with low cost causes the, the, the Air Force to want to buy it a whole bunch more, like an MQ-9 or an MQ-1 back in the day. Whereas a plane that's more expensive then causes you to, or is not performing well, causes you to cut back on the buys and that grows the cost. So I guess, <laughs> what's your view on the causality problem? Yeah, it's really interesting. I think it depends on what you're going after. So if you're going after some, I'll tell you, if you combine a platform that has some hard technological problem and you invest in it wisely through IRAD and, and you invest in the R&D to advance the tech readiness level to a point that you can operationalize it, that that is one challenge. When you try to do that by layering in five, 10, or 15 of those TRL problems at the same time, there's so many independent variables that, that cost performance and really time start to start to be uncontrollable. And so we're the, as a result, 
in these platforms in the past, we're reacting to, we can only develop technology so far. We're predicting what we can probably think we do, but they're not things that we can promise that, Hey, on you know December 31st, when you open your Christmas present, it's going to be uh, a sixth generation fighter with all these widgets on it. It's just not, that's not how uh, developing technology works. And so what does that actually say about, again, going back to this, I'm going to have a 30 year time view of where I'm going to be. How do you communicate that to Congress that you're going to be iterating through in some cases, you can't say exactly what that force structure might look like. Yeah. And I think NGAD is going to be the more that the Air Force can communicate to Congress behind closed doors about how NGAD as a program is structured. It's inverting the paradigm at a couple of pain points that for a generation or really historically the Air Force has had with uh, platform, specifically aircraft development and sustainment. And so flipping some of those models and going to a, a government reference architecture type system and moving instead of doing these these. 30, 40, 50 year aircraft programs that really just atrophy the industrial base because you kill competition for you know, half a century and you have to sustain these platforms. And about 70% of an air, a platform or an aircraft's cost is in the sustainment. And so if you were able to front load that and invest that money up front to develop a platform and then continually redevelop platforms and buying them in small uh, bite-sized chunks, so instead of buying you know, a thousand aircraft, you buy a hundred and that allows that the second competitor that maybe didn't win that contract to iterate on his design and get into the next hundred aircraft and then the next hundred aircraft. And so it actually helps reinvigorate the aeronautics industrial base. And that also provides a whole bunch of on-ramps for all of the other uh, technologies that are going on, whether it's uh, hardware, software, uh, sensors, algorithms. So there's a lot of things happening. And I think that NGAD is, is going to be a, a framework as long as Congress, we can get them to agree to it. One thing that was striking about these set of articles on on the seven to four plus one was that they were really talking about NGAD as like a single system, whereas there was this kind of idea that it felt like the PCA program was a little bit co-opted and then turned into this portfolio of systems that might be coming out of it in the digital century series model. What's your view on, on that kind of, is it singular or is it still like an evolving? And, I, and does this actually get to your view of having a government-led architecture and, and what that means? Well, I don't want to comment too much on it because I actually I'm involved in that a little bit. I'll plead the fifth on some of that, but I will <laughs> say that what I've already said about it is it, changing the paradigm of being involved early with industry. It's a two-way conversation and having them be in the seat with us as we're going through the tech development and what are the attributes for a platform that we're looking for and then getting that buy-in. Uh, so it's not really it's not really a competition. I'd say it's a collaboration with industry, which makes it way different than, than what we've seen in the past. But there's this concept of 70% of the cost of aircraft is in sustainment. And I don't think that's actually like a law of nature. I think yeah. as, as you were saying, like if you have more agile processes, you could potentially like shift that output and, and do things a little bit differently and draw more money into investment and actually lower the overall sustainment costs. Is that one way out of the trap of prioritizing either readiness or modernization? Or like, how do you think about this kind of like trade-off between readiness and modernization? Oh, that's a good question. Well, I think it's not binary, first of all. I think the Air Force and really the military usually sells budgets with a theme. And so here's our $150 billion budget proposal. And here's the theme of the budget. At the end of the day, it doesn't need to have a theme. It just needs to make sense. 
And so I don't think when you, when it's not binary, you don't have to th- trade readiness for modernization. What you need to do is figure out where you're, you're going to accept risk in the portfolio. And instead of choosing what we're going to invest in, we need to make better decisions of what we're not going to invest in. And we've been, the Air Force has been notoriously bad about that. And it's not, it's not helped when we don't have a really good compelling narrative to get Congress to agree to stop funding something. And so there's tons of examples where Congress would buy things that the military has said that they don't want, but the political pressures win at the end of the day. And so that's a big part of of the conversation is being all these things that we're talking about. They all have a a political aspect to it that you can't ignore. So Let's move into a round of retire it or not. And these are right. Benitez's uh, own personal views of what's going on. Or you could just describe what the, the trade-offs are in them. So first, let's start with one of those things that have, has been asked to be retired, but Congress will not let it be retired, the A-10. Awesome. So this is the plus one, right? <laughs> exactly. So we know we have some time and we really need to do, I think the message here, the Air Force's message should be, we need to optimize the fleet. And so we've already invested in rewinging much of the fleet. We could talk about how that was done under political duress. And, but anyways, it's getting funded. Right now, we have about 281. And I think we've seen the Air Force talk for a few years that they want to get down to 218. Uh, and that number probably coincides with the, there's an NDAA, I think 2016 has a legal limit of P, what's called PMAI, it's operational aircraft of uh, 171 aircraft. So when you add up uh, test training, it spares, you end up getting to about 218. But really, I think that's more, that conversation about the A-10 platform should be more about the A-10 community, which has nine op squadrons. And so I think what you'll likely see is the Air Force is going to try to consolidate some of those squadrons. And some of those squadrons aren't even really squadron size, to be honest with you. They're half squadrons just based on the drawdown of the A-10 and it's spread out. So that's where the A-10 is at right now. If the Air Force, a win this year, if the Air Force can convince Congress not to go from nine to six squadrons, maybe go to seven, but you can do that. If we get through this year and the Air Force can't convince Congress to even go from nine op squadrons to eight op squadrons for the A-10, then that we're stuck with that thing for a long time. And it's going to, it's good in the near term for cost effectiveness, but in the long term, that's money that we can't put into some of these other platforms to get them to where they need to be on time. So if you remember the, one of the, the problems the Air Force ran into was with maintenance. And so in the A-10, the F-35 program assumed because it was in the program that it was to replace the A-10. And so in the Air Force programming for the manpower, the A-10 maintainers were to transition over to supporting the F-35 program. When the A-10 wasn't divested, the Air Force was stuck with a maintenance manpower bill that it couldn't pay. And so we had this huge manpower issue for maintainers. And so we ended up getting rid of a lot of experienced maintainers and that happened. And then we had to onboard a whole bunch of maintainers. And so in the past three years or so, there's been a lot of young maintainers that, that are growing out in the flight line. So that's kind of the A-10. I think that nine to six, if we can get the 218, that'd be great. I think that's like the, the Air Force's uh, vision for the year. But honestly, if you can get down to 250, I, I call it a win. And what's the close air support kind of vision of the future for the Air Force? Oh, that's a great question. Back Probably five, six years ago, there was an internal study called, which was uh, what the next A-10 kind of attack airplane would look like. It didn't last very long. It was an informal, unfunded study, but we were trying to figure out what the attributes 
of something to replace the A10. And there was the the publicity around the uh, quote A10 F35 competition that was mandated in law. And so that we have, there's attributes there, depending on how you set the scenario up, you could basically script the winner. And so that's not, it's not even worthy of a of breaking that down. But if you want to talk about the future fight, that's a whole follow on podcast that we can, that we can wrap about. Okay. Good enough. So let's move on to the next retire it or not the RQ four global Hawk. Oh, this thing just I think for 20 years, the air force has been trying to divest some of them. So most people probably don't realize uh, the fleet right now, it's about 30 to 35 global Hawks. And there's three types. There's a block 20, a block 30 and a block 40. And so you have to talk about this in the types of global Hawks, not the number of global Hawks. So the block 40 is the newest. And I think we have about 10 or 12 of them. Uh, and the air force wants to keep them. The block 30 is a majority of the, of the global Hawk fleet right now. And that's the one that the air force has been trying to get rid of for a long time. And then you have the block 20, which I'll talk about in a second. So what was interesting this a couple of weeks ago is in the discussion about the, uh, in the posture statement from General Brown, he talked about uh, the need to divest the Global Hawk. And so to put that money into a quote, penetrating ISR platform. And so I think you're going to see in the next couple of years, uh, what that penetrating ISR platform replacement is and, uh, and come uh, to see the light of day. And so that's kind of where I think that the, what General Brown's talking about there, but he's definitely mentioned the penetrating ISR platform to replace the Global Hawk. As a sub-argument, now you get into the earliest ones, the Block 20s, and that's really an argument about what's called BACON. It's your Battlefield Air Command node. So there's actually seven of these platforms around the whole world. Four of them are what's called EQ4s. And then there's three which are, which are E11. They're basically manned uh, corporate jets with the same backend system. So three are manned and four is unmanned. And so here's what's really interesting is the Air Force wants to divest the unmanned part of this, but buy the more manned ones. So buy more corporate jets with the bacon equipment on it, but get rid of the unmanned ones. So these are the ones that they just do an orbit in the sky for 10 or 12 hours at a time. And so it's not exactly the most... Exciting mission. It's, I would say exciting <laughs> mission, but yeah, survivable. But from the man versus unmanned argument, it's really interesting of why you would take a mission that is it's it is perfect to be automized, why the Air Force is not going that way. So that, that's really interesting to see how that one shakes out. They want to buy more manned aircraft and get rid of the unmanned aircraft for uh, for bacon. So I think if the air I think the Air Force is trying to go from about 34 global hawks down to about 10. And so if they can, if they can get even half of that this year, that is money in the bank that they can reinvest where they need to. On the new penetrating ISR, the only one that I've heard from that is the RQ-180. Do you have any hot takes on it? No comment. Good enough. All right. So the last on retired or not, let's talk about the KC-135. Oh, okay. This is a tough one. All right. Let's get into uh, to acquisition. Go figure. Uh, so the Air Force handed itself in a quarter with what should have been a very simple program. We're 20 years into the KCX program, which is what the KC-46 is. How are we doing for a commercial uh, off-the-shelf adapted solution? 20 years later, we're still messing with it. So the KC-46 was always designed to replace the KC-135. It always has been. The problem is now the KC-10 retirement, which is a much larger tanker, but there's much less of them. There's about 55 to 60 of them. But the KC-10 retirement has came into the fold when sequestration happened as a way to cut. If we cut entire fleets, we can save a lot of money. So it was a money decision. And now what's really interesting now is as we start looking at KC-46, it's so far behind that now... We are running into problems with KC-10 sustainment 
and readiness. And so there's some cascading effects and you're not going to be able to buy enough KC46s to fix the KC10 shortfall. They are not, they're, they're not the same capacity. They're not in the same league and they weren't designed to be, and they shouldn't be. So that's the, uh, the KC46 problem. I think you're going to see, there are some, there's some creative solutions out there, but they're probably not ones that are palatable to the air force, but they are for industry. I'll say that. Seems like there's this really hard challenge, just aligning retirements of aircraft. Like I, I expect this aircraft will retire in, let's just say, 20 years. And then by the time it gets there, maybe Congress doesn't let it happen or the follow-on program that I nicely planned to be operating at that time just turned out to have all these delays. And so it just the maintenance thing on the A-10 was a telling story there of just like yep. not optimal uses of resources. Exactly. Yeah. But yeah, but I will say that there's probably, if there's ever a, a, an era in the Air Force where creative ideas are welcome, it's now because we have so many problems that I think people are just looking for some fresh ideas. And like, how do we stop digging ourselves into these holes? And so for the tanker fleet problem, I think that there's a, there's a market and a business opportunity if the Air Force would open it up. So think of like how the merchant Marines support the Navy. There's probably a future for contracted civil tanker bridges. And so where you could actually go from the United States over the Atlantic or over the Pacific. And you're not in theater, you're just transporting and dragging aircraft to and from theater. And that would free up our military assigned tankers for military operations. And so if you did that, it would actually change the paradigm of tanker planning. And you would actually create some, some industry off-ramps for some interesting, some interesting opportunities that could happen. Yeah, I've heard about a couple of reports that they were looking into like asset service model for tankers. And it seems to make a lot of sense. We'll see how they go with that. I guess it was contingent on the KC-46. And as that kind of proceeds, there's a case or not a case. So let's move yeah, on. It, and, and on that, so it's a KC-46 is a 767 based tanker. We the Boeing has developed a 767 based tanker 10 years ago. And there's about four nations that operate it already. So it's not like it's that we've, we have overcomplicated something that should have been very simple. Reference the boom and all the other stuff that we're trying to do with it. So Yes, we could go faster, but we, like I said before, we add too many uh, independent variables to make it unnecessarily complex. And then this is what we end up with. I've seen a lot of like interesting articles from Airbus on their tanker and everything. Like they keep saying everything's going so great. And this last one is tanking goes automatic. (laughs) And then you look back on that competition, you're like, what could have been? So I'll, I'll, I'll move on from that one. So you're an F-15 guy, but you know, you're dealing with all the the aircrafts right now. There's two sides that are arguing in this F-15 EX versus F-35 debate. And you say both aircraft are needed. Can you just talk a little bit about that? Oh boy. Yep. Okay. So to have that discussion, look at the Navy. Have you, did you hear the the debates and all the press about the F-18 versus the F-35 C debate? Have you heard that? I'm not clued in on them. I just That's right. Because there isn't one. It doesn't exist because the Navy and those that follow naval aviation, they realize that the carrier air wing needs a balanced set of attributes. That's, it's very adult of them, really. So if you look right now, the Navy, they have a very simple problem because they only have a few uh, TAC air platforms. So this year, the Navy is curtailing F-18 procurement, and they're going to double down and invest that in their carrier version of NGAD for tomorrow. And that's going to be complemented, guess what, by the F-35. So it's going to be a two-fighter carrier air wing. And there's no one debates that because it makes sense any way you view it between redundancy, resiliency, capacity, capability, sustainability, logistics, like any way that you view it, 
that makes sense. If you go to a unified platform on the carrier, you have created multiple single points of failure in the logistics supply chain, capability gaps, attributes, et cetera. Okay. So that's the Navy. No one ever says anything about that. So now let's look at the Air Force, but instead of the fighters, let's look at the bombers for a second. So for 50 years, the vision for the Air Force has been to have a two, two types of bombers in the entire fleet. And guess what? There's no debates on that either, even today. So yeah, we have a three bomber fleet, but that was because of the B2 program uh, debacle. But people don't remember in the 80s, the original vision, this is the height of the Cold War, was for about 130 B2s and about 75 or so B52s. So it was a two bomber fleet. Yeah, it didn't happen. And the B1 has its own political backstory of how it got uncanceled to be the stopgap. But that was the force design. And no one ever argued that that wasn't, that wasn't the thing that's, uh, that's the way forward. And guess what we're doing now for the future? It's a two bomber fleet. You have a B-21 and a B-52. No one is arguing against that. And you go, why? Because it makes sense any way you cut it. So now you take all that and you apply it to the Air Force F-15EX versus F-35 and people lose their minds. It is ridiculous. It's a great example of how you can have the smartest people in the world. They start to sound really dumb when you start letting emotion and bias just creep into the discussion and they don't even realize it. And it leads to things like these sweeping claims and they start speaking in absolutes. And anytime you start hearing that, just take a step back and go, wait a minute, what's going on here? Or they try to use uh, very cherry picked war stories or really data and analogies that are from 25, 35, 40 years ago to try to support their position. So anytime I hear that, it's, uh, it's really unfortunate that it's really just a emotional debate for a reasons that the reasons are pretty clear to me, but I don't think the general public realizes why that's so emotional. Uh, and it really goes back to why the B2, we only have 20 B2s and why we only have 185 F22s. It goes through the death spiral of procurement for investing in technology for game changers. So yeah, I get it. All of these this older generation with these over-the-top talking points and sound bites have a ton of scar tissue from that era. And I totally understand it. And I would too, if I grew up in that era, but really today is about moving and looking forward. And if you're objective and you look up at the attributes and what the different platforms can and can't do, you will see that both of them are required. And so you can blend them together. You can pull them apart and both of them together, they complement each other very well. So one will not, no platform by itself can survive. It is a system, which is what force design comes in, which is why General Brown wants to go from seven to four and not seven to one. Uh, and I'll give you, I'll give you one example about how the two could complement each other. And, uh, and it's not stealth. So I, everyone wants to talk about stealth. That's its, that's its own thing. Uh, and I won't talk about that for a whole bunch of reasons, where it's good and where it's bad. But let's talk about the radar. So the F-35 uses the APG-81 radar. So it's a very small radar because it's a smaller craft. It's actually angled in the nose, so it's not installed flat. So it's angled so it, for low observer ability. And then it's optimized. The software is optimized to transmit and receive in a way that reduces its signature, so its ability to be detected. And all that system is made by, by Northrop Grumman. So now the F-15E and the F-15EX, it uses the APG-82, which is... It's the newest, largest, and most powerful ESA radar in the U.S. inventory. That's it. It's not the, the Air Force flying inventory. Uh, it's optimized because it's not an LO platform. It is actually optimized for extremely high power and long-range detection and tracking. 
And oh, by the way, that's built by Raytheon. And so now we have two different systems with two different attributes that are built by two different contractors that use two different sets of algorithms and techniques. And so when you look at that, even two of those platforms side by side, looking at the same thing, the contractor A's algorithm to do function X could be terrible compared to contractor B's. But in another environment, a contractor A might be able to do function A, B, and C, but the other contractor could just crush it. And so we, it's interesting to see that diversity of equipment and algorithms and putting them in those environments of how we can actually leverage the best of both worlds to create some really interesting effects. And so when we, when we go to these one platform that does everything and there is no other way, we really start to eliminate a whole bunch of other options that we, we take it off the table. So, you know, whenever we think, at least in the Department of Defense, whenever we think about the next generation aircraft, it's if that aircraft is going to be viable through the bureaucracy, it has to be better than the legacy in every single way, or else it, it, it just doesn't work. And because usually we, again, have that kind of like single thing to, to rule them all kind of mindset. But it seems like the way that you're talking is like, there's just inherently always going to be these trade-offs in design of systems and that does it, and that leads to a more disaggregated view. You know, as a tester, do you have to always check the box on it's better in every way exactly as the requirement was, or is it just like, hey, as long as it's better in this one area and it's and the the users like it, then it should be able to be inventoried. So, so there's two parts of that. I think the first part is there there is a specification compliance aspect of test. Does it work as advertised? Did, are we getting what we paid for? And then there's the more operational test, which is how do we use it? How do we optimize it to produce the, the best battlefield effects we can? And then we write that down and we codify it and we train the Air Force in the tactics to do that. So when we field something, we field it with, with, Hey, here's the tactics that you should use with it. And that's really what, where I work right now is we get the equipment that the air force will see in a few years. So maybe two to three years ahead of time, sometimes four or five, we look a little bit left into the, the developmental test world to try to help them out. And so when we get something, they don't just throw it in the old days, there was developmental tests and operational tests, and they would do DT in its own world, spec compliance verification, and then throw it over the fence. And then operational tests would get it. And we're like, well, this isn't actually usable at all for the warfighter, but that's not the lens that specification compliance kind of lives in. And so we actually are, have very good relationships across the operational test and developmental test enterprise to make sure that we can get early involvement to view that equipment through two different lenses. And it really goes about just like that radar example. If only one of you was doing it, you would either one would get it wrong. And so you need both people looking at it from their, both their positions to try to make the best informed recommendation and decisions to either mature, tweak, or modify the hardware software platform. So when it does get to the warfighter, it is, it's, if we call it blue, it's blue four proof. So it's lieutenant proof. So he can take it out and he could use it and it makes sense. Sticking with the test and evaluation, chief of staff of the Air Force, CQ Brown, his mantra has been accelerate, change or lose. What does that mean for the test and evaluation community to align with that goal? Yeah, like I said, we've probably a few years, at least a few years before General Brown took over, the test community has been on that has been on that path. We actually about a year before he took over, the Air Force did a internal research. We formed a big team and we briefed a bunch of people and we looked at what if we were to rebuild the entire test enterprise, what would it look like? What if we could just move to a we don't have developmental tests and operational tests, we just have tests. 
And instead of in this test enterprise, who would it report to and, and how would it operate and, and how would it streamline the ability to, uh, to get things through to the warfighter faster. And at the end of the day, uh, we ended up not changing for a whole bunch of reasons, but we are constantly looking at how do we optimize ourselves to advance the capabilities we get and get it to the warfighter faster and w- deliver a better product at the end of the day. But I'd say that left of that, accelerate, change, or lose kind of starts with industry. And so they're, you know, they're not going to like it. If you deliver test a better product on day one, uh, test is going to go a lot smoother. And so the probably one of the worst kept secret in tests that anyone that lives in tests will tell you that nothing that has ever been delivered for the Air Force to test shows up and it works right. Nothing. On day one, nothing in the history of tests has ever worked on day one when it shows up. And so there's a ton of things that we have to go through, whether it's software tweaks, pilot vehicle interface, so moving buttons around so it makes sense, or, hey, when I push this button, the aircraft shuts off. That's not supposed to happen. And so there's glitches and stuff. There's hardware. And so you look at like size, weight, and power. So you change one thing in an aircraft and it creates a problem somewhere else with an environmental cooling. And so now the avionics overheat. So there's all these problems that we end up, we get deal with. And so we make sure that we hold the line. And so when it gets to the warfighter, it actually works as advertised. And the last thing that they need to be worried about is, Hey, I wonder if this thing is engineered, right? Because if it falls apart, I'm kind of screwed. And so they're depending on the equipment when it shows up and that's the lens that we view it at, but yeah, garbage in, garbage out. And if, if something showed up faster and it was, it was working more better when it started, tests would go a whole lot smoother. So that's my, that's my pitch on that. I, I'm uh, wondering. <laughs> When I just think about, at least in software and like the architecture of some of these systems, like software wants to move super fast and get deployed almost continuously in some cases. So the data and app layer is pretty quick. And then maybe for the operational flight program or hardware, like different types of sensors, maybe that's on a longer time cycle. But usually I see OT&E and like DT&E, like these are very discrete, like here it is on, on the schedule as opposed to like having kind of a more continuous or staggered view of, of how testing could be done. Does what I just say there make any sense? A little bit. And, and some of it is the paradigm of contracting. And so the way that things are contracted, so we contract OFP development for like software. And it says that in this contract, we have this much money, this many months to deliver this at the end. And again, if you start with bad code in the beginning and we're manually going through and finding problems and writing up problem reports, and we spent all of our time fixing all these software glitches. At the end, we run out of uh, money and time in the contract. And the capability at the end is maybe not the same that we wanted, but it's going to work. And so uh, we have some, we have a lot of contracting uh, stipulations that kind of anchor us to the way that we do software development. It could be done better, obviously. That's a whole different conversation, but there's a paradigm there. And I think we'll get there eventually when we get to, if we can get to agile software development with DevSecOps and actually are on the loop to, to provide that feedback. But right now it's that exists a little bit, but not DevSecOps does not exist on aircraft for, and- for, for the fighter or bomber community. So have, what have you learned from like the F-35C2D2? Is that kind of getting closer to that vision or? Yeah, that's the most mature because it was uh, structured that way first. I'll tell you that F-22 is trying to do it way, way harder because the software in the F-22 isn't very easy to upgrade without creating other problems in the code that have to be fixed. Uh, and that's called Racer. And then F-15 is actually moving to agile software. It's called CDNI. And that'll happen uh, probably in a year or two. Uh, again, it starts the contract structure and then in the contract, how do you do it? It's getting better, but it took 
even when we moved to it, it's taken a couple of years just to be able to develop a software cycle that works. So lots of growing pains. We're hoping that we can use those lessons learned. And it's not an F-35 problem. It's just the nature of trying to do agile software development on an aircraft. Uh, that is agnostic of the contractor. It's agnostic of the platform. And so I just want to be very clear. It's not an F-35 problem. It is a problem in moving to that kind of structure. So if we can get to that paradigm and that process with the F-35 and we can move, port those lessons over to the other platforms, I think they're going to catch up uh, a lot faster. Is it, it easy, It's easier to get after that on a new platform than it is on, on an existing one? Do you have hopes for the end gap? <laughs> yeah. So, so I'll say after it was, it, was, it was a good thing to start because there's honestly, there's a lot of money flowing into the program that allows us to, to do something like that. You take something like F-15, which has some money flowing into the program, but not its pennies compared to the F-35 program. That's a massive program. And so it's easier to, to go after the big lifts like that, looking for big wins when you have a bigger pot of money to do it with. Learn your lessons on that when you have some capital, and then you can be very efficient with the other portfolios that don't have that capital to burn. Okay. So I want to get to an orthogonal issue with test and evaluation. I'm going to read yeah. you a quote from a former Navy commander of operational test and evaluation all the way back in 1976. All right, go for it. <laughs> so here's the quote, and then I want you to react to it. Again and again in briefings and conferences, I'm asked, what are the major problems in TNE? I think that there's only one TNE problem, and it's not in TNE. It's the planning, programming, and budgeting system. <laughs> Starting in 1970 with the Blue Ribbon Panel and following thereafter with the Commission on Government Procurement, we have been establishing a defense industry material acquisition system that is achievement-oriented. Yet we are still programming and appropriating our funds on a calendar-oriented system. And when we reach the point where the calendar says that we should be going into production and the test data will not support this, it's simply too painful to try to reprogram large amounts of funds on short notice from procurement into RDT&E and make it work. Until we come to grips with this problem, I don't think we're going to make any progress on improving T&E by looking at other smaller T&E problems. So, oh boy. All right. So, so Break that down for me. Well, that's a long quote. Okay. I laughed. But so PPV, V&E, that's the extra P that I add. First for... start, what's, what's the extra P? <laughs> the extra P product. is for politics. You have to include politics and everything. So there's uh, so PPPVE and, uh, and sunk cost fallacy are the two things that jump out to me in that. So uh, and you and I have talked a little bit about, let's just call it P3BE. That sounds better. So I don't have to keep <laughs> saying PPP. So that's like the tax code, right? So it's archaic. Everyone hates it, but no one seems to, to have the, the trifecta required to change it. So you need time, energy, and influence. Then we could make a better tax code tomorrow if it benefited industry. But right now there's an entire industry set up to benefit the way it's structured. And so that's the way it you know, persists. So the, the budgeting process is the same way. So you'd think that like the politicians that have been in Congress for 30 plus years would have at least one of those, which is the influence, to then direct a commission that could devote the time and energy to actually make the recommendations for some reform. <laughs> That's a whole other debate. There's uh, there's consumed by what I th what I think are more uh, trivial defense matters. So that's what their the oxygen gets you know consumed by that. But uh, for for the P three BE, it, it comes down to colors and lines of money. And so I could tell you wh where I live. You're familiar with the colors of money. So you have the RDT and E versus O and M and then how annual planning works. And so one-year money versus two-year money, there's different authorities between them, or uh, sorry, one-year money and multi-year money, I should say. We are a great example. I work in a operational test and evaluation wing. So test and evaluation. You know how much RDT&E funding we get? 
Zero. Zero. We our entire wing is runs off of O and M money, which is thirty four hundred money. And so we actually, even though we're operational test and evaluation, we have the our weapon system evaluation program for the entire Department of Defense. We use Air Force O and M money to fund it, and that money is in the same pot that competes with combat coded units for resources. It shouldn't have to be that way, but that's just the way it is. And then within our, so that's the colors of money. And then we have lines of money and program element codes. You're, you're familiar with PECs. Our, where I work has over 50 different PECs of money and you can't move a penny between those little 50 little stovepipes. And oh, by the way, because of the, if you back up into the first two P's or the first, sorry, the middle two P's, the planning and programming, that money was put in those little stovepipes two and a half years before we see it. And so the environment at the execution level changes and like, hey, you know, it'd be great if you could put this money from here over to there, but nope, can't do it, not allowed. And so we're at the end user, we see the output, we're on the E side of it, we see this and we're like, this is terrible. So it, some of the stuff makes no sense. The, the example that I, I like to use when I talk to people is we have about, I don't know, 20 or so different platforms in our wing that we do test on. And so our RQ4, they're in different pecs, as you can imagine. The RQ4 has, we'll call it $200,000 for tactics development. And it's, and it's the way the program is structured. There's a program manager that puts money in this. And that's the money. At the end, we have $200,000 for tactics development. And then we also have the F-22. And for the way that the budget worked out, we received $0 for tactics development. And so as the end user, we go, hey, if I had $200,000 to put in the tactics development, would I rather put it into the RQ-4 or put it into the F-22? Everyone would say, put it in the F-22. That's great, but I can't. So it stays with the RQ-4. And that's the, uh, that is the execution level of the P3BE paradigm that we've been stuck in for probably 50 years now. Was it the 1960s? We uh, moved to that system. That was the McNamara. Yep. Yeah. So then the other part of that quote is, what was it? A sunk cost fallacy. That's right. And so that goes back to what happens when you get a program that's behind schedule and it gets behind schedule because either the contract was structured wrong. So uh, the lowest price technically feasible, or it's just too much, too much technology that they're trying to get on a timeline that's not feasible. So then by the time that we see some of the stuff, it could be in developmental tests with issues for an entire fight up. So five years and then it shows up into operational tests. So we get it. And there's so much momentum to get it to the warfighter that it's, it's, it becomes the unkillable program. Like we're, and at the end of the day, even though that we're test or operational test, we actually don't make a decision. We make recommendations on, on fielding and we assess capabilities and limitations, but we don't say, Hey, don't, we're not fielding this to the warfighter. We just make recommendations. And so there's uh, there's been some interesting examples where we recommended don't field this because of X, Y, and Z. The air force came back and said, the warfighter needs it. Okay. And sure enough, about six months later, when we said it was going to happen, they said, Hey, all these are broken and there's no spares to fix them. And now they're usable and everyone's pissed off. Go, yep. We told you it was going to happen. It's on the second page of the report. So it's uh, it's an interesting example, a paradigm that we live in for uh, for that. That's a great, that's a great quote. I should hang that on my wall from 1970, 1976. You said, yeah, 1976. Oh Jesus! I, the sunk cost one just always seems to get me because it's all the momentum and like the procurement money's there, senators and congressmen and their constituents that everybody's. We got to get this thing in, and we don't even have anything to backfill it. Even if we did want to delay it, it's not, we set up multiple programs that would be competing and we didn't 
know which one would get it into production, right? Yeah, it's a it's all in basically. There's no there's not multiple on ramps and off ramps. So you look at like the air battle management uh, system AVMS, yeah. tons of on ramps, and there's political off ramps that were put in place for that program, and so it becomes more palatable for you could take a little bit more risk in a lot of areas because it's a lot more palatable. Then if you go all in on something like the Army's FCS, I think they spent $20 billion and then canceled the program. So that's one and a half aircraft carriers. <laughs> so that's And it delivered nothing because it was too much technology and it got stuck in tech development for so long. So yeah, big lift, big win. But man, if you don't, you can't always go for home runs every time. I think from the FCS, it was a $20 billion development and they got $3 billion in before they canceled it. So Okay, that's what it was. Yeah. It, yeah, that that would be twenty billion of just completely sunk would be even more. But <laughs> that's been one of the. I want to. Get I, remember, I remember Senator McCain always yelling about that one. So. Well, Senator McCain yells pretty funnily about a lot of programs, and it's that's just, right. Oh, this program failed. Who's accountable for this? Oh, that guy got promoted to be like a general officer somewhere else several years right. ago. But it wasn't really his fault anyway, because he was just handed a program from someone else. Right? You know, that's that's a good point. So when we have these programs that are in development for say ten years that's five or six different program managers have been in charge of that program. And it's really hard, not only to have continuity when you're talking about, Hey, four years ago, this was the plan. And I, this is the guy in industry I talked to who's been there for 20 years, but you also have, it says continuity, but there's also accountability that goes with that. But hey, the guy that made a decision three program managers ago, I'm left dealing with and like, Oh man, that sucks. You know, when you look at just how even as a military officer, like we, we get annual reports on our performance. No one went back for the guy who made a, a bad decision three program managers ago and modified his performance report. It's the guy that gets left holding the bag. I want to stick with this guy here from 1976 because he said some other interesting things. I want you to react to him because he says, okay, I'm not going to quote this because it's, it's a long quote, but he's basically saying, I'm perfectly willing to test anything anybody can name without measures of effectiveness from stated in attempt, for example. I'm perfectly willing to use measures of effectiveness, but you don't want to over-concentrate on them because essentially it's hard for anyone to know what they mean. It's like he was talking about an eight-inch gun ab aboard a ship, which is a Navy thing, but he was saying like, is it eight rounds a minute or 12 rounds a minute? Is that going to make a big difference? Maybe, who, who knows? And even then, like when you talk about a certain thing, is it hits per gun per minute? Early hits, there's like lots of different ways to like define a metric. And if you measure one thing, then there's probably going to be attributes of another thing that you left out that could have or should have been looked at. So I guess what's your view of just, can you just take a bunch of smart people that are testers and just put them out there and let them shake it down in any, in all the creative ways that they can. And that should be the test versus like attempt or what's well, the trade-off? Yeah, so you need both. So what you're talking about is objective versus subjective, really. Where I live in operational test, we, we have a pretty good balance of both. There's sometimes we go out and we have to get objective test points. And so, you know, we get a run card or certain parameters because we're trying to collect some data to see how the system operates, whether it's target location error, whether it's electronic attack, whether it's you name it. And then there's these subjective things where we operate this equipment and we say, hey, this is terrible because in this environment, it won't work. Or, hey, this is a single point of failure here. And, and we're able to shape to an extent a little bit how the equipment, the technology gets uh, tweaked for the warfighter. So the, the operational test absolutely provides a subjective lens for that. So we don't go out necessarily with these uh, metrics that we're looking to score every flight. Uh, and that's why our an average, good example. So in an average fighter squadron, you might have, uh, you have a handful of instructors, you have a weapon school graduate, 
maybe two if you're lucky. That includes the commander and like the chief instructor is usually a weapons school graduate. And then you have the average person in the squadron probably has 500, 600 hours of, of experience. In our wing, our fighter pilot squadrons, our fighter squadrons have on average half of the squadron are weapons school graduates and everyone has about 2000 hours of experience. And so we do that so we can actually use our experience and all of us have different experiences looking at the same equipment to make those subjective assessments inputs. And we, there's a lot of collaboration that goes on to mature the product, to get it where it needs to be. But I guess the, the question here might be, should it be easier to update uh, test and evaluation master plans or should those things be able to iterate on a more continuous basis? Or do, is there a good value from like before milestone B blocking down a set of things that really should be built to? I think when the planning assumptions change, that you have to go back and look at the plan. And I can't think of an example off the top of my head where we did something the planning assumptions changed and we went back. I can tell you that there was a, a really funny story that happened probably six months ago or so for some, it was a milestone review for software. And we had gotten the contractor on this platform had been doing pretty well with software development. And so we were just, we just kept going because our, we operated pretty much the same pace. So our throughput just depends on what we get and they were delivering better product on time. And so we were able to, to get through all the tests we need to do and we kept going. And so we ended up going to this conference, which was the, I think it was a one-star general had the approval for the milestone authority to go ahead. And we had to tell them like, yeah, we actually hit that milestone three months ago. We just kept going. <laughs> and he's like, oh, well, why are we having this decision brief? I don't know, but we just kept going. Like, why would we stop and wait three months for a meeting? This makes no sense. The one star was like, yes, press. I completely agree, but I feel like I should have a say in this. But you do. <laughs> that's why we're here. So it's not, it's not as structured, I think, as most people, you know, they read the reports and things and they see it's a very binary, sterile environment that we test things. A big part of testing is interacting in an environment with the hardware software and then getting that experience and insights. And so that's a yeah. very subjective. Yeah, that's interesting the way that you're framing it there because it seems like the formal process would have caused you to just like work stop, right? <laughs> Wait several months. And then you have all of this coordination issue. You could imagine like a web of these things happening and, and how that could affect timelines. But you guys just went ahead with it. And we hear that, about this several times from people like, oh, we were able to get this prog program started by randomly. There was money in this account and we were able to get here and we got this guy. Or it seems like these very kind of individual stories that remind me of like World War II stories where it's just, oh, it's just me and this little group of buddies and we took that hill or whatever. And it's just like this really individuated kind of action. I'll tell you, at the, at the end of the day, like all, it's, all, it's people, right? So we are the test. The Air Force Test Enterprise has probably somewhere around 20,000 people in it, and they're all doing something and they're all trying to do the good. And so when we, there's a lot of collaboration that happens and, and people are always trying to find a way to, to get things to the warfighter faster and without, you know, speeding or breaking laws. And so there's a moral, legal, ethical limits, but the dialogue between the program managers, the testers, and really the, the headquarters is a trifecta of how we are able to keep. We keep a, a open dialogue to, like, hey, we're not surprising anyone. We're just, here's what we're doing. Tell us if you want us to not do this. Okay, we're going to keep pressing and impress the test of how we've been, we've been working for the past few years. And it's been pretty good. So talking about innovating here, you wrote that agile combat employment could be the quote, most disruptive effects of anything the Air Force can do in the near term, end quote. So what is agile combat employment and what does the USAF need to do to make that a reality? Oh, shifting gears. Okay. So agile combat employment, I'll just call it ACE. 
So ACE is basically the Air Force's effort to wean the force, the fighting force off of giant vulnerable bases that really today are just juicy targets. So night one in the war, guess what's going to be a target? Those huge air bases with all of your aircraft parked side by side. So it, the closer you are to the threat, the closer the base is to the threat, which means the base is going to be more vulnerable. It's That's geography. So ACE is about how do we get closer to the threat without a base? And so it's all about dispersion of mass. So that's really what it is. When I said like why it's important, why it matters, it's about generating effects. So there's internal and there's external. So everything that you, and then you can Google it. There's a lot of stuff in, about ACE in the past 18 or 24 months that's been in the press, but most of it has been effects related that's external. So think, okay, hey, we're doing, we're moving this around China, this Russia, that. So I'm not going to talk about that. I'm going to talk about why it matters internally to the Air Force. And so ACE, where I like ACE is that it's all about reframing how the Air Force shoots, moves, and communicates. We historically do not look at fighting by shooting, moving, and communicating. And so if we view the problem of shoot, move, and communicate, then you start to look at what do we need to invest in so I can shoot better, I can move better, and I can communicate better. And if you think of it as like a pie chart, historically, and you break it up into three slices of the pie, Historically, the Air Force views probably an 80% shoot uh, slice of the pie. There's probably 10% move at your logistics and then 10% communicate. Like, how do I command and control this? And those last two, logistics and comm, like, it isn't sexy, but that's some of the most unsexy things to, to, to the, you know, the public is the most important thing to the warfighter. Uh, and I can't count how many times I've seen you know, some really awesome fighter pilots build a tactical scenario, they go out and execute, then they debrief, but then the whole thing makes absolutely no sense because it ignores things like movement and access to munitions. How do I get fuel? What's the sortie generation capacity? Why would I not be attacked before I took off? And so there's all these, this mentality, you combine that with these rotations to these bases in the Middle East that outside of a random mortar attack here and there, there's they're not really that vulnerable, not when you compare it to a high-end fight like a versus Russia or China. And so that's infected the warfighting core for a generation. And so I think ACE is awesome because it forces the Air Force to go back and approach the problem for the more holistic view of the shoot, move, and communicate. If we could do that, maybe maybe ACE can make logistics cool again. Yeah, you said up front that you know more money need to be in logistical systems to drive that cost down. But it seems, at least in the public narrative, that the F-35 is pretty tethered to, to its logistical base and it's not as flexible. But we've been hearing about this kind of island hopping experiments that they've been doing with F-35 as well. What is, it, like, you, you just said we need to think about logistics. What actually needs to happen for, for us to get there? Yeah, so I think it's a good example. First of all, we need to reduce the amount of manpower that's required to support. Just pick a platform and a number, and then you work your you work your way backwards of what you need to operate and sustain. So if I say I need two F-35s, okay, how many maintainers do I need? How many weapons troops do I need? How many munitions troops do I need? How much equipment do I need? And how long do I need to, to operate? We historically don't, we view that as what we call UTC, unit, I can't remember what the acronym stands for, unit type code, unit something, but we deploy in these predetermined blocks of logistics. 
but those, but that has a massive assumption behind it, which is, Hey, we're going to the middle East and there's all this stuff will be in place and we can bring as much as we want. We just throw it on the C-17 and, and sooner or later, you, you, the logistics tail to support something, it becomes just overwhelmingly massive that it's just not, it's you bring in the base with you, which is really not the point. <laughs> you don't want to deploy and bring the base with you. And so it's about minimizing manpower, minimizing and simplifying the equipment and so there's, if, it, if a F-35 requires 10 pieces of support equipment that take up a hundred cubic feet and weigh four tons, how can I make it five pieces of equipment that weigh half as much and take up half as much room? And so it's thinking about everything from like, how do I minimize this which, to get it to actually do its function and able to do it uh, without, without power or, Hey, if a hydraulic cart goes bad, do I have a, a manual pump that I can uh, manually pump this thing up. It's all these things of how we can move move things around. And then when you get to platform level, we're obviously wed to the supply chains that we have with our platforms. But think about the uh, like the T seven is was engineered from the ground up for commonality within its parts. And so you know, the left horizontal stabilizer is the same exact part as the right. It's just put it upside down. And so there's not a left down. There's just one. And uh, the servos that control the the main wings also control the tail. It's the same servo. And so I only need one, not four. And so they've built an aircraft that has such a skinny supply chain that you're able to actually, you know, operate. That's a training example. So it's, it's optimized to be extremely low cost and easy to sustain. But the point is our, most of the fighters right now are not developed like that. So instead we need to think about what is the flyaway package for say a 30 day operation or 45 day. And that kind of gets back to uh, my old days, the Marine expeditionary units. One of the things that they used to do is they would have, they would be able to deploy ship to shore and their logistics assumption was 30 days without resupply. And then that was how they operated. So we're going to leave and this is what we're taking, but the assumption is 30 days, but not a day more. And we need to either replace us or bring in some logistics to sustain us. And we don't really think about that as a, as an air force. We think about getting a platform there and then figuring everything else to build a bridge, to send them logistics to sustain, which again, is you're bringing the base with you. So that's a big difference. Yeah. It also feels, you know, after the, after Northrop built the F-20 Tiger Shark, put, put a good amount of money into that in, in their own IRAD for low sustainment costs. And then the Air Force was, we don't want it. And they moved on with the F-22, which was the opposite, right? Like high sustainment, we don't care about sustainment costs. We care about capability. And I think that kind of showed a, a pretty big signal to everybody else what, what the Air Force cared about. Yeah. And if you look at uh, the F-117 is a good example. Number one is simplified and focused on a, one hard problem, which was LO. And basically everything else, like I don't need to develop a, I don't need to develop a navigation system for this aircraft. I'm going to use one off of a C-130. I don't need a landing. I don't need to develop a landing gear. I can use one off an F-16. I don't need to develop a new engine. I'm going to use the F-18 engines. So it, it is a parts bin of, air, of, it's an aircraft built out of spare parts from other platforms that already did all of the development. So the supply chains are already in place. That's one of the reasons why it was able to actually field and operate so quickly. I think six years or five years from, no kidding, like bar napkin to IOC is they leverage, what do we have in the parts bin? Let's build something out of it and then focus on the hard problem, which was the uh, the signature. Yeah, and I, I often point to this and you got a pretty good memory. The F-117, they use the engine from the T-38A, flight controls from the F-16, landing ah, gear from the A-10, and environmental systems from the C-130. There you go, just, that's what it was. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> I know it was but, something like that, sorry. But it just seems like that's, 
it makes a lot of sense to do it that way. And I think that's, you were mentioning this before in terms of kind of more agile processes, but it also lends itself to a better supply chain. And you, you heard about this old Air Force used to it in the 40s and 50s, they would have a common set of broad components and you basically be recombining those in new and interesting ways. And, and then they were saying, especially electronics is forcing us to go to this much more integrated model where all the subsystems have to be designed in the context of the weapon system. And that's the weapon systems approach. And, and that's like the fundamental approach behind the P, P3BE, right? <laughs> the planning, programming, yep. budgeting system. Exactly. Is- Modularity is the future. Modularity is the future. You heard it here first, right? And 30 <laughs> years ago and 100 years yeah. ago. And that's really like open mission systems is all about modularity, right? It's about, hey, if, if, if someone has an algorithm that goes, hey, in a perfect world, say all of our aircraft had open mission systems and company A came out with an amazing algorithm that does auto target recognition that's better than company B. Yeah, all right, guys, load company A's ATR algorithm onto all the platforms, zap. And I go, okay, like company B, like sorry, like we found a better product. You can keep working at it. Like keep going for it or you work on something else. And so you're promoting competition and it's continual and iterative and, and that kind of open mission systems approach. That's really the future. That's a software example, but there's obviously uh, hardware interoperability that, that we can shake out. So the F-15 radar, the APG-82, it actually uses the antenna off of an F-15C, which is an APG-63. But the back end, the hardware is sourced from the, uh, the, the Navy, the F-18. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's actually it started, one of the reasons they saved costs was like, hey, let's just use the components that exist and then put in some better processing and a bigger power supply. And there you have it. It's been done before in industry. And it, it looks like the government's pushing hard to make that happen again. And we've been hearing Congress and the GAO kind of bemoan the, the lack of technical data that the uh, DOD has on the F-35. But also recently, we've been hearing with the LCS, like maintainers don't even have a lot of the specs to understand how to actually maintain those ships, let alone have the necessary IP rights. When you're thinking about this kind of modular architecture, there's this term bandied about, own the technical baseline. I wonder, what does that actually mean in this context? If we're talking about fighter aircraft specifically, what do you think that means? Yeah, well, I, well, I don't think it means that we're going to, you know, if, if we instantly had digital twin of an F-35, we would just go, thanks, Lockheed. We're going to go buy or build our own F-35. Like, <laughs> I think that would happen. There's, there's obviously, I think sharing the information is beneficial and you can actually understand what's going on to make better informed decisions or uh, some insights. Hey, how is this actually working or operating or how is it doing this? Uh, I think that's beneficial, but uh, I don't think it's in the platform level. I think it's in the the container level and really some things like hardware, software type stuff, but I don't think it's in the, in the large component level. There's probably subcomponents like, Hey, I want the IP for maybe not the IP, perhaps maybe I want the IP for a hydraulic servo, for instance, for a wing servo, for a fighter, doesn't matter which fighter. And maybe we want the IP because we want to have a competition that says how, who in industry can meet these specifications at half the price and twice the performance. It's stretch goal. And you have an open competition and you get a, a lot of smaller aerospace companies involved to design something that is maybe a better product. And maybe there's some collaboration that happens where the small company gets paid for the competition. They give their IP to someone who can d- produce it at scale, which is probably the original vendor. 
and there's some licensing that happens. So I think there's a lot of back and forth that happens with IP. There's some opportunities there, but we have so many things that have vendor locks and we just stuck with it until we're, until we can break out of the, that paradigm. So it starts with software. Uh, there's a really good quote from the uh, SOCOM conference this week. I won't spoil it. It's actually in my newsletter that comes out Sunday. So you can read it Sunday. Let's talk a little bit about your newsletter. So it's called The Merge. You started it. And I think uh, Ryan Fischel, former Acquisition Talk guest, is an editor there. Uh, so what ma- motivated you to start that? And what are you putting out? Yeah. So like most ideas start as a pain point. Number one, I, I started it because I got tired. I, I read a lot to try to keep what's going on, keep up what's going on around you know, the Air Force and really the military. You know, I've been doing this for 20 three, 20, 24 years almost now. So I'm losing track. Uh, but at the end of the day, like I got tired of every day, I would have to sift through a ton of press that really just, I didn't find valuable or it just didn't matter to me. I don't care as a professional, as from the warfighting perspective, like I don't care about the latest uniform change. I don't care that some commander got fired or that something happened on the other side of the world. Some unit rotated uh, on a deployment. There's plenty of people and outlets that are covering that and that are talking about it. It's great. And I, and when I want to go figure that out, like someone will tell me, uh, and I have my own ways of, of keeping tabs on that, but I didn't have is a place that had none of that. It was like, what are, what are the things that I care about? And I'm pretty sure other people care about them too. And I bet if I had something that just had that stuff, people would actually be interested and be more informed instead of just closing all that stuff off because it's just too much chaff to, to sort through. And so when I started looking at the things that did matter, all of that stuff is, is covered through uh, what I call outside looking in journalism. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I think that the the defense reporting core is awesome and they do tremendous work and they are fine Americans. But at the end of the day, it's reporting, not really insights and thoughts from inside the arena. And so uh, I like to say that I'm an operator who writes versus a writer who fights. So I think there's a big difference. And then the other thing is I've always been pig. I'm a lifelong learner, but I'm also a, a lifelong sharer of trying to share and educate and inform of what I picked up along the way. Those three things put together, I figured if I started doing something that I thought was valuable to me, it's probably valuable to other people. And so I could found a way to share it. So that's why I launched the merge to, to solve that. And I write it in the, it's written in the tone of uh, an anonymous fighter pilot. That's probably got a ton of experience, a little bit of pessimism and somewhat of a, a salty sense of humor. And so there, you get a little bit of a, a mashup of uh, some, some insights that you probably don't get anywhere else. A little bit of like, Hey, here's what's going on to think about. And then every now and then some opinions that you probably couldn't get anywhere else. And, and, and probably the, the last thing is I don't try to take it too seriously, which is why I think it kind of resonates is just when you think it's getting serious, it's, there's something in there to mix it up a little bit just to keep you on your toes. And I don't think there's any other defense media outlet in the world right now that has a buy me a beer button. I'm just saying it, we definitely don't take it too seriously, but I really enjoy it. And the feedback I get is, is good. So I'm, I'm having a good time doing it. Yeah. So our audience can go to themerch.co to check it out and, and sign up for it. It's actually, you actually do have a, a bunch of funny parts in there. And there's also like a, you always have like trivia questions. Are there any kind of fun defense trivia things you'd like to share with our audience? Ah, nice try. You're going to have to wait till Sunday. Yeah. You have to sign up to, to get in. So you get to read in every Sunday morning and I've got, I usually have a, either a trivia um, or a history uh, blurb in there just to keep everyone pretty centered. <laughs> okay, cool. Any final thoughts? Eric, I'm, dude, I was happy to be here. Proud to serve. Thanks for having me. And I hope I didn't wreck your podcast and maybe you'll have me back one day. <laughs> so, we're happy to, to have you back on and you're doing great work. Mike Benitez, thanks for joining me on Acquisition Talk. See ya. 
This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time.